Broadcasting from everywhere and nowhere. The Misfit Crew at Southfleet HQ is proud to bring you the Die Living Podcast. So, Justin and I went through the Q course together in like 2006-ish time frame. Yeah, 2007. And Justin... Part of your seven-year Q course experience? It was slightly shorter than that, but you're not exaggerating so much that Mm -hmm. I, I can like just outright throw a drink at you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say he took the long way around. This is that how was the, the Ooderson of the yeah. Q course. I have acquired many years of active duty service, quite a few of which were in SWIG. <laughs> yeah. Doug was the Van Wilder of the Q course. Yeah. I don't ever want to leave. SWIG is so great. I just like being shit on by people. That's right. I'll graduate sometime, <laughs> Dad. <laughs> so Justin got hurt during the Q course uh, on a night jump, which only is more anecdotal proof that static line jumping is the devil. <laughs> so and, stupid. And somewhere after that, like we stayed connected through Facebook, but mm. like really it's been uh, 11, 12 year gap where we yeah. haven't really seen each other recently um, <laughs> through a small world connection. Justin was added into a, a quasi intellectual group that we are all part of on on the Facebook and the he group w- that shall not be named. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh but he is you're th- are you the director? Yeah, so I founded this thing. He founded crazy, a, right? An organization called the Impel Project, IMPL yeah. period project. That's right. It stands for implementation. Yep. And he is doing kind of crazy things NGO wise all over the developing world. He was featured in a New York Times article that one of our other friends wrote um, about uh, kind of like what violent extremist organizations mm-hmm. are countering them in the Philippines. Yeah. Uh, Post U.S. military involvement because mm-hmm. we're kind of like in a new phase there, right? Definitely, though it's ramping up again. Um, you know, we closed the Joint Special Operations Task Force Philippines in, I think, uh, late 2015, early 2016. Uh, you know, it was one of those banner moments. You know, mission accomplished on the uh, uh, you know, on the aircraft car- carrier. That's what we said, but we really had um, the. How do you pronounce the Philippine president's? Oh, Duterte. Uh, yes. Yeah, Duterte. I always feel like I'm going to really screw it up. It yeah, roll, no, yeah, that was. Off the tongue. <laughs> yeah, that's. Yeah. Duterte's boot was up our ass mm-hmm. as we were cl- declaring total victory in the Philippines after 50 years of occupation. Yeah, so the problem that we have 60. here is that um, the Jasotif P was a little bit lost in its mission. It had been around, I think it was formed in like 2002, 2003. For the viewers at home, Jasotif is the Joint Special Operations Task Force. It's the fancy word for Lottie Dottie, everybody that's got funny badges on there. On that's the right. Cool guys. Cool guys. Cool uh, guys who want to spend most of their time in Mindanao. Yeah, that's right. And <laughs> <laughs> Subic Bay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, uh, that, and that's probably one of the, one of the big issues. I mean, the, the problem with doing this type of work, you know, and for anybody that's been deployed in special operations is that it's it's very much an all hands uh, type of effort. You have to have people that are doing messaging work. You have to have people that are doing community development, governance work. Then you have to do the security work. And everybody has to nice uh, play nice with each other, uh, put some money into it, put some investment in, and really do a lot of community engagement. 
soft isn't great at that. Uh, and the Which problem, is ironic because like we're supposed to be. That's right. But we all know that like the difference between reality and rhetoric is quite large. Yeah. Because there has been an enormous shift uh, since 2002 within uh, especially like the, the battle space owner community, you know, the, the, the special forces guys, uh, Marsoc when they came along in the SEALs, um, where a lot of it focused much more on kinetic action, direct action, um, you know, kill capture missions. That's essentially why uh, civil affairs and psyop has grown so much in the past decade and a half. Which is, How, you know, the the banner year, the impl- the combination into the first special forces command now. Yeah. Know, oh my goodness. Uh, just needed a place for O fours through O six to get more rank and more OER bullets. There, one day there will be a psyops general in charge of first special forces command. Oh, th- that'll best, never happen. The that'll, best joke ever told. Uh, th- that, that's right. That like <laughs> brains will explode in use of sock. That will never be allowed to happen. Um, that's the four horsemen of the apocalypse right there. Um, so yeah, but the problem with the Philippines is that the rules of engagement were always so strict that, you know, their, uh, the foreign internal defense mission, the training mission that the, um, uh, that the kinetic forces, you know, mostly special operations during my time. Now it's, it's more MARSOC, but it's always been a triple a mission there, right? Like it's always been advise, assist and a company. It has, but l- much less a company because, okay. um, the Philippine, the Filipino military was very like, I, I, so I, I will openly mm-hmm. confess. I knew nothing about that's okay. anything in the Pacific Rim. That, that, that's why we're talking, man. Not a first group dude. The, hey, that, and, that, and that's why uh, that, that's why there's always an open invitation for to come out and see it for yourself, man. Well, and honestly, the more you like, most people invite me to do things stupid like row across the Atlantic Ocean in an open rowboat. And I'm like, oh, no, that's happening the fifth of never. Yeah. <laughs> but when yeah. you're like, come visit me in the Philippines, I'm like, yeah, that's actually sounds kind of fun. We oh, should, I, I should do this. It's it's the coolest thing in the world. And the thing, the so, thing that's really important now is that I think if we look at U.S. foreign policy broadly over the past, honestly, 18 years, um, the thing that we've done incredibly well as a government, certainly as a military, is kill people. Like we have killed a lot of dudes, a lot of like mostly bad guys, you know, some civilians. It's a healthy mix, but uh, <laughs> healthy. Okay. Uh, but yeah, it, you know, we, we, we've killed a lot of bad guys, but we're still in Afghanistan. We're still in Iraq. Um, I mean, we're going to be negotiating with the Taliban. The Taliban are absolutely going to have uh, some role in the future of Afghanistan. And that can't be what winning looks like. You know, we closed down the, uh, the Joint Special Operations Task Force Philippines. And then within six months, three uh, ISIS affiliates grew there. Um, which means if they if they had kind of come out of the uh, jungles in six months declaring themselves, they were there before we shut down. We just didn't know about it. Um, and one of those groups metastasized to such a large level that they took over a city of 300,000 people uh, and held it for five months against the, fi- the Philippine government. That's that's pretty serious. So what it, the problem is the difference between doing good stabilization, um, stabilization work around the world, I don't think the U.S. government has figured it out. I don't think we have evidence of that. Um, Has anybody figured it out? No. No one's figured it out. I think we spent so many years growing up villainizing colonization Mm -hmm. and that aspect, you know, that like, but I mean, if we look back, the British really seem to be the only people that had an idea of like a peaceful transition and I mean, something that was productive for locals at all. I'm not even sure if the British government figured out, but what I do think is that the steps to go from a third world illiberal Mm-hmm. totalitarian dictatorship to a Western liberal government involves 
illiberal acts and steps along the way that Western democracy cannot stomach. I think that's true. But I think one step beyond that is that we we don't remotely have the political will and the patience to do any of that. Sure. So I think going forward, we need to be much more moderate in the way that we approach these things. I mean, I don't even I, I don't ever have that those type of uh, goals for communities that I work in. All I'm trying to do is figure out how can we create a space for communities to govern and secure themselves, quite frankly, because, um, you know, most governments in the places that we're working they're non-functioning. I mean, they don't provide security. Not really. They don't provide security like out in the hinterlands. They don't provide any sort of government services. I mean, it's it's an absence of government. Of government. So how do communities run themselves? And quite frankly, in the back of my mind, I grew up in southern Indiana um, and, you know, very small town, 700 people. And, you know, nobody there wants the government. They have a way of governing themselves. And so long as they get a little bit of tax money, can do the roads, make the school run, eh, they're happy. Um, and so – what we've really what we've really gotten a lot of traction in doing is figuring out is reframing the problem in terms of the community. So we spend a lot of time gathering immense amounts of data um, in helping communities work through like what how do they frame their problems? How do they frame their solutions? Who do they trust? What does right look like from their angle? Let's just empower that for now and try to create some sort of uh, stability bubble for whenever the government is ready to get off its ass and do what it's supposed to do. Sure. So, so to I it's like we should wind this way back for just a little bit. So sure. Like I more I'm going to refocus on you for one second because I just want people to understand that they're not dealing with like a, a total putz, right? So like you, before you came to the army, you graduated from Duke, right? With your yeah. Do you, want me, do you want me to give you like the yeah, two do, minute spiel do a two about minute like spiel about about Justin Richmond? Yeah. Okay. So um, I had spent um, I had spent a couple years working in South Korea, um, and then uh, I, I got accepted into Duke, and I went to. Uh, I graduated from Duke in. Are we going to call it a couple years? Yeah, can in we South do Korea? that? Can we just do well, that? I'll stick with you. Thank with you. you. I appreciate it, but I just don't want to have to. A couple. Rehash. No, I because love. I, it. I, I love it. Then I have because then I have to explain yeah. everything else. So uh, let's just say that your your work was a two years a mission uh, uh, from God. Uh, <laughs> uh, community engagement, <laughs> yeah. early practice and community engagement. Understood. Um, and quite frankly, I was the only Korean-speaking white guy that applied to Duke that year, so I'm sure that was the reason. I mean, I'm not particularly handsome, and I'm not particularly smart, but you know, they got to check off the Midwestern block. They got to check off the uh, Korean-speaking white dude block. So <laughs> here I am. Thank you, affirmative action for me. Um, Duke was Duke was a good experience. It's a great school, um, but uh, um, went through it and wanted to figure out what I wanted to do with my life and joined the army. I enlisted on my father's birthday in 2005. Um, and then, um, yeah, September, September 20, uh, 2005 was when I ended up down at Bragg or down at Benning to do infantry school, airborne school. Then you and I linked up at uh, Bragg. And so oh, yeah. I did, you know, did five years in the army, you know, like you said, um, you know, broke my leg on a night jump, switched over to PSYOP. Best thing that ever happened to me. And quite frankly, I mean, I know that people will be like, what, why, you know, oh my God, you know, you didn't, you want to be that, um, SF guy. And for a long time I did, but, um, what, what it really boiled down to for me was that I wanted the old SF mission. I wanted the old, like, snake eater, living in villages, working with communities, because that's what I thought was so special. Um, you and I both know when we got into the course what we were presented with at one point was was different. Oh, than, absolutely. Um, and and once I saw the direction it was going, it just it, – it wasn't what I was interested in. Um, and SIAP was a lot better fit. Now, I didn't um, – So now you became a professional litterer. 
literally yeah no so i will be the first guy to tell you i think we should never do paper products again <laughs> like a lot of the communities i work in are complete like are really illiterate and uh they use that stuff for toilet paper it is the biggest waste of money i'm a huge believer in face-to-face -face. Oh, i thought asians, oh for sure i yeah. thought asians I, only I, had electric the best value. spray toilets I, i've always had a bad taste in my mouth about psyops because of that like not just the professional littering but like that's one of those things that is a bullet that an officer can use in psyops to show that they dropped one million pamphlets. Change, right. yeah, exactly. They, we can drop forty-two thousand pounds of yeah. paper stock yeah. across this square mileage, mm -hmm. which resulted in a raised awareness of American operations in the area, yeah. or something like that, where it's really, really difficult to quantify. <laughs> Our guys got out and talked yeah. with people yeah. because. That doesn't so, look as sexy. Yeah. So if we take um, – I will address that. I will – because the point that you make is is critical and every – this is something that has, has to be discussed both within uh, the special operations circle but also broadly um, within just the USG circle. Like how do we actually do influence operations and measure them in effective ways? What you're talking about is an output, right? It is what did we do? We – this many tons, this many leaflets that would cover this square miles and ideally this number of people. But it, it is um, – an output is simply a measurement of what a unit did, uh, of what an individual did. It is not a measurement of uh, outcome. How did the community react or impact? How did behavior change over time? Did it change positively or negatively? For sure. Uh, so let, let's put a pin in that. I will come back no, to it. No, I, I definitely swear. want to come back to that because no, – No, because I like – That's the whole reason I wanted you to come in today was to talk about what effective outcome – like. You're doing something as a civilian now that I think is is the absolute reason most of us join was to affect our local sphere of influence. Nailed and it. You're broadening this sphere of influence, and I want to know yeah. how you got there and what you're doing now. Yeah. So what's really important to understand is that because of my language skills my and my history um, in, in Asia before I joined the Army, uh, they put me in 5th uh, PSYOP Battalion when I graduated, uh, which is the uh, SOC PAC-focused, uh, Special Operations Command Pacific-focused um, uh, battalion. Sister to first group. Sister to first group, yeah. Um, and... Um, and then I deployed to the Philippines in 2009, and I uh, I, I was the team leader down in an island, uh, a rest of province called Sulu, uh, which is still like the like it is it's the most dangerous place in the in the Philippines to work. It is uh, it's just it's been a safe haven for a, a long time for bad guys. Um, I mean, governance development like nothing happens down there. And um, and that's why I wanted to go there. I, I actually got to uh, pick the area that uh, that I went to, and that was the AO that I chose. Put me in, coach. Yeah, exactly. Because you know, it, I had waited four years to deploy. So obviously, if I was going to do it, um, I wanted. I really wanted the 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 best experience and, and the best challenge. And I will tell you, I, I had a phenomenal team. The first um, SF unit that we worked with was one one. Um, you know, first battalion, first special forces group out of Okinawa, and they were really good. Then we had three one, uh, third third battalion, first special forces group that had uh, come off an Iraq rotation, um, and that that experience, that deployment experience, changed my life, um, and it changed my life um, in in a few ways. Uh, number one, you know. I was an E5. It, it, if I had gone to an SF team, you know, when I graduated from SWIC, I mean, I would have been, I, I, well, I was a, I was a Echo, uh, or I would have been an Echo, so oh. I would have been on the SIG debt junior for at least, oh, Junior I mean, is there a worse job within uh, Special Forces than a Junior Echo? 
idiot nerds. Yeah, <laughs> idiot, pretty much, and inexperienced. I As mean, there's an just AT echo. I confirm your statement. Right there's there was much angst between Brian and I as I took years to graduate the Q course uh, against grinding against myself, and I showed up and went right to war. Yeah, and Brian went you know to the finest legion as a yeah. a high performing good grades, well-liked individual and mm-hmm. sat at the SIGDET and played with his own butthole for like <laughs> a significant amount of time. I was never in the SIGDET, I'll have you know. Yeah. I was on the B team, yeah. the running, B- running the combo section. That's right. Unhappy, though. Yeah, and you deployed right after that. Yep. The only gate Doug couldn't pass was his own hubris. That's true. Wow, that was really poetic. I mean, it's it's a hundred percent true. My my big mouth and my my always had it. completely unsubstantiated oh. sense of self. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know about the latter, but the former is uh, spot on. Um, I grew into it. That's what I tell people yeah. all the time. So about um, so we we had had some real great progress while we were in um, while we were in Sulu and uh, there were some great operations that were going on the ground in critical and strategically important communities um, but about three weeks before I had shown up uh, aid workers from the International Committee of the Red Cross ICRC had been kidnapped and they had um, and they had been you know trotted through the jungle for like three or four months uh, the the armed force of the Philippines hadn't been able to like rescue them and so the Philip uh, the Swiss and Italian governments paid a shit ton of money to get these guys back. I remember this. Right? Yep. So this was a huge issue, and it was a, a big embarrassment to the Filipino uh, Filipino military. And then um, we got some information that the bad guys that had kind of orchestrated that whole kidnapping were going to be at a, at a satellite camp close to a large Moro National Liberation Front camp on the Feast of Eid, and people wanted to you know, our task force wanted to support a larger uh, operation by the Filipino Marines or by the Philippine Marines to go get those guys. Um, and it was wrongheaded uh, because, as we all know, Eid is a really important day uh, on, in the Muslim calendar. You know, when you've been fasting for an entire month and you're finally now allowed to eat again, I mean, it's it is really, really yeah, important. It's Muslim Christmas for sure. It, it, it is. And nothing. Um, nothing I could do, uh, nothing anybody else that were, you know, the naysayers about this operation could do uh, to stop this. And when, you know, uh, Eid starts at dawn and when the Muslims were all in uh, in the mosque praying to bring Ramadan to a close, we had bombers flying over like uh, like over the island, over the main city to go drop 500 pounders out on the uh, out in the jungle on this camp. And we had the little birds coming up out of our um out of uh, our camp to go like strafe the jungle because of course the um, the battalion that was doing the sweeping operation of the three battalions they were bogged down in the mud because it's really hard to get to these places and they were they missed their hit time by three hours and so you know, on, on a very important day on this you know Muslim Christmas you have um, you have the population watching these bombers and these uh, these attack helicopters fly overhead, do all these strafing runs, and I mean, it was an incredibly negatively impactful event that radicalized the island against us. Sure. Well, at what point? Like, I feel like there's a lot of times when the military doesn't ask themselves a simple question, which is, does this act or this mission make us the bad guys? Yeah. It's a, does it get us what we want? Because mm-hmm. wait, if we can't define an end state, it's it's the David Koresh syndrome, mm-hmm. right? It's like, hey, we rec- we identified 
notionally, we're going to say that this guy was touching kids and, you know, he was a polygamist and that he was stocking a bunch of illegal guns, but he goes into town every day. What is our in-state? We want to arrest him. All right, cool. Why are you going to do it at his house? You know what I mean? Like yeah. pick y- him up at the hardware store. Yeah, yeah, just wait till he comes into town. That's right. And like I That's feel right. like a lot of the time we don't typically go through like the process of being like, if our desired in state is this, what is the way we do this with, at the lowest cost? Because we just because we have the resources doesn't mean we need to a- use ab- them. Absolutely. And I think that desired outcome is what we have to have a much better. Uh, there, there, these conversations need to happen all the time, and. Heaven forbid, I, I believe this is true, but I think one of the biggest lessons that the Philippine military learned from our uh, partnership with them over the past, you know, well, by that time, eight years, but, you know, up to now, 18 years was, man, kinetics matter more than impact. It's like, it's better to kill, bu- kill bad guys than it is to actually, like, help these, these communities, you know, become more peaceful and realize, you know, the incentives for us when we're working in Afghanistan and Iraq and other countries, it's always somebody else's community. But the Philippine military is largely focused on Philippine communities. They are way more incentivized to really show a, a better face, to uh, help stabilize these communities because it, it impacts their own security. It, it, it actually benefits their own country. Whereas, I mean, but it's, it, it sounds that way on its face, but we, I could look back at history hundreds of times and seen domestic forces that act as. The Gestapo, you know, it's all, like all, all, the, right, all the time. Well, there becomes this huge demarcation between warrior culture, this thing that the U.S. has been yeah. really good at exporting to the world's detriment. Oh, yeah. And the populace like, oh, civilians, those are the peasantry. But I'm going to go kick in doors. And no one stops to think, like, if I kill these 20 bad guys and that creates 500 bad guys because now they hate us and they're trying to kill us. Like, was that a successful mission? Well, it is on paper. And yeah, that, that, that's, that's exactly right. And the problem is the Philippine military is largely Christian. They're almost all from the north and central part. They're, they should have spent the last 20 years integrating uh, the Bangsamoro tribes into uh, the military to actually be the ones to do it. Because I mean, one of the great lessons we learned in Afghanistan, you want – we need to figure out better ways for communities to police and secure themselves. I mean, if you want, if you want to cause fighting, have an outside group, you know, police up a community. And we learned this in the United States. Um, you know, you have cops that don't look very much like the uh, areas that they are policing, and we have problems that go down. So all this to say, um, that was September 20th, uh, 2009, day I'll never forget. Um, and then uh, nine days later, uh, two Special Forces guys were, were killed in an IED blast that was, uh, um, that was a reaction to that operation. The only two KIAs that we had during the Jesota P uh, happened during that time. Um, and it was myself and the, uh, the SIGDET uh, sergeant that were uh, Aiden Litter for one of the SF guys. Um, and, you know, full disclosure, we, we had worked with that team a good bit. Um, I mean, the, I, I wasn't like buddy buddy with them. I didn't like text them every day. It wasn't anything like that. They were they were colleagues um, and, and comrades, but you know they were they weren't friends or, or, or like good friends. Yeah, no. Um, but they were still one of us. Your Venn diagrams overlapped. Uh, ab- absolutely, and yeah. you know, and, and we want to help them. We've been working with them a lot, um, and I felt like, you know, they they paid for the consequences of our bad decisions, um, and that absolutely changed the way I looked at this. Now, it wasn't 
when it comes to these types of operations, it's just not on the military to always have to get the answers right. I think that's where uh, like State Department civilians, uh, United States Agency for International Development civilians or NGOs um, need to be involved in this process and need to be collaborating very closely with the military. I still believe that if we had had a State Department rep, a USAID rep, or even like an NGO guy my, like myself that was advising the task force commander, um, they could have said like, don't do that. There's so much animosity between those organizations. Tons. And DOD. It, Tons. Even if it it doesn't always run both ways, which is the kind of surprising thing, mm-hmm. but almost, well, I say it doesn't always run both ways. I feel like the DOD generally has a, especially in the soft community, has a more open mind to entertaining civilians that come from USAID or DOS. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the the people from DOS and USAID have such a negative preconception of what they're dealing with with the military that it becomes very adversarial very quickly no matter what anybody wants to do. I think that's largely true. And and, and it breaks my heart to say that, but I think that's largely true. Um, so that that deployment, because I couldn't do anything, being the, the E5 PSYOP team leader, I, I really had no vote. Um, and I was like, well, this is horse shit. I, I, I want to have a vote. I... I wish I could have done something to change that decision. Um, and I couldn't. And, you know, two families don't have husbands and fathers because of that. Um, I mean, it, w- it weighed very, very heavily on me. And so I was like, so I always looked at, you know, that, that other side, of, I, I looked at the civilian side. I was like, you know, if I, if I did that, I would have access to more money. I'd have a stronger mandate. I could have, you know, I can weigh in on stuff like this. So I got out and immediately went to work, uh, for a USAID contractor. Um, and uh, quite quickly, I was shipped off to Afghanistan. So the places that we were talking about, most yeah. in our sea east. So um, I did four years, uh, four years with USAID, uh, two tours in Afghanistan, where uh, I was a stabilization advisor for RC East and spent a lot of time in Wardak and Ghazni and Paktia, Paktika and Host, uh, which was great. Um, and but because of the military background, you know, I could I, I spent most of my time just with combat units and sitting with them and working through their their stabilization plans. You know, how how were they using money for influence? How did the security operations, uh, you know, not uh, screw up the the stability? You know, just going in there and kicking in doors and creating more bad guys. How do we actually use the security operations to support governance? To support stabilization? To support the, like the economy? How do we make this a whole government effort, which is really hard to do? Um, but when I was in Afghanistan, I realized that, um, we are spending hundreds of millions of dollars here without having real data to, you know, to check ourselves, to be like, what, what does the population actually care about? What is, what will be the biggest bang for the buck? Do they actually have a water problem? Well, and DOD was commissioning, like the data they were collecting was so stilted, like uh, from the it, human terrain team type projects, you know, <laughs> where it's like, Hey, if you, if you ambush close on that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know I mean? You know what I'm talking about? I, like I, I, I do, I do. And we would link up with the HTS folks. And the problem with HTS was that each province was so different. It was led by a different human terrain system, you know, leader and had a different team. And they, a lot of the uh, academics that came to Afghanistan, they all had their little pet project. It's like, I am an education PhD, so so long as everybody goes to school and you know gets a uh, full structured education, there will be peace in Afghanistan. Then you go to the next province, and it's a health PhD, and they're just like, if everyone has access to public health, there will be peace in Afghanistan. I'm like, wait a minute. The Taliban is stabilizing areas, and they are providing a single one of these things. They're providing security, a little bit of money, and some governance. They are doing dispute resolution. But mostly they're providing someone that looks like them. 
it, it, it's that is an Afghan solution. I've had a lot of conversations with people about nation building, and I frame it in this: if like aliens landed on planet Earth tomorrow, and they're like, "Hey, man, the Earth is totally fucked. You guys have wars all over the place. These people are starving. These people are. We're gonna fix this problem for you." And every one of those aliens had a big fucking gigantic gun on them, yeah. and they're like, "Hey, check it out." Like, no matter what they did, no matter what they solutions they implemented, no matter how much they tried to help the populace, a gargantuan portion of the human population is going to pick up arms and try to fuck them up. Yeah. Period. It, it, insider, like, outsider, it does like not dynamics. Matter. Yeah. Ugly, big-headed motherfucker going yeah, get it. Yeah. Well, that, that, <laughs> does not matter. Except for we're using bullets and they're using laser guns, but, you know. They, they are trying to take over. No, they're like, no, 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 we're going to get out of here. We're we just finish. came for water. does not matter. We, we come are, in peace. We are going to <laughs> blow you the fuck up. Yeah. And that's what, who we are. Yeah. In Afghanistan, that's who we are in the yeah. Philippines. Yeah. Like, it does not matter our intent. Yeah. Dude, forget aliens. I mean, imagine if but there was some the kind aliens, of like. Aaron, we're the aliens. Well, I'm just saying, even <laughs> even thinking about it, this is obviously an extreme example, but imagine that there's like a, a massive, uh, you know, like natural disaster mm-hmm. on the West Coast um, to the point that internally, like we're not able to handle the infrastructure like immediately mm-hmm. to do that. You know, how would we feel if like Canadian National Guard units or like Mexican National Guard units were like mobilized into the country or like they don't look like us, eh? I'm yeah. saying you're, I'm talking no. about like a like a foreign military presence, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, I mean, people would be freaking the fuck out. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And so I I think that yeah. Anyway. So and, and I'm a, I'm actually glad that like this is the direction that we're going with this because it was these experiences that taught me that like outsider solutions simply don't work. That like a seventy or eighty percent local solution is way better than some sort of outsider hundred percent solution. Yeah. Um, and the problem for me was that like we weren't. We didn't have any way of actually getting that pure signal from local communities. Um, and this whole paper pencil thing that like groups were doing, it was just, uh, it just wasn't very good. So I actually left USAID to go work at Palantir, uh, Palantir Technologies. Um, and, um, you know, it's a big data firm out of Silicon Valley. And it was simply like a two year boot camp to learn how to do data because, I mean, I was part of the problem. I didn't know how to do data correctly. I didn't know how to, I didn't know what good, clean, raw data looked like. A lot of academic, a lot of academics don't even know. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, like, I, oh absolutely. <laughs> which, is, which is hilarious when, uh, you know, they asked me for, I mean, this is like the nerdiest thing, uh, but, you know, they asked me, you know, about my sampling techniques. And I'm like, sampling techniques, like I know exactly who I want to be dealing with. And so these, this is targeted. I'm not going to well, do some fancy the, random sample for you. And the Department of Defense absolutely positively fucking has no idea. What uh, the U.S. government cannot contract data collection. And I mean, they struggle in doing this. And dude, the only data filing system that the government knows is a fucking shredder. Yeah. Like there is literally petabytes of quality data that's been collected because that's your what's, task. What's a petabyte? It's right above a uh, homobyte. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the government that's has no idea how to do this, and it's, it's all really good data. Um, the only organization that has any idea how to do data management is the NSA, mm. and that's because it's a bunch of big data guys that work for them. Mm-hmm. And everybody else is just like, we don't know. Even though every single unit on the ground, it's like a fucking. It's from the Vietnam War. This Pat, this McNamara, you know. Yeah. Like 
we're going to collect all this data and you're going to provide all these metrics, but we have no idea how to handle it. We yeah. don't have the resources to you're do ab- it. You're absolutely right. And I think one of the biggest problems that we run into is it's not a military task to actually gather community-focused data. Like, that That should be done by NGOs. For sure. Um, because, like, how you will never answer uh, questions to someone holding a gun in front of you the same way that you would answer questions to someone who looks like you, who speaks your language and isn't holding a gun. For sure. So, I mean, there, you know, getting really pure signal is the only way that we can really figure this out. So, um, so myself and uh, two, you know, close friends of mine, we founded IMPL in 2015. Uh, it stands for Implementation Project. We're based out of Washington, D.C. Um, and it is... Impel exists to address the main, like the fundamental breakdown of uh, civilian military uh, dynamics, but quite frankly, like the international development system. Um, and those four main issues are, you know, the lack of good local data um, and lacking good data. There isn't any analysis, good analysis on that, you know, garbage in, garbage out. Um, the the lack of beyond surveys. I mean, surveys are great, but people's opinions change over time. How are we measuring like the actual behavior of communities? Because, you know, one of the, one of the best things I learned in PSYOP was people's perceptions of you do not matter. Their behavior is absolutely what matters. So like, and and when it comes to a lot of the work we do now, which is uh, counter radicalization and counter, you know, foreign state influence, what's important here. It isn't that someone likes me or hates me. It's that they don't hate me enough to kill me, right? I mean, if we're, I mean, now that we have a podcast, right, you know, you could probably ask, how many people hate Justin Richmond? There's a line out the door, but how many of you are willing to shoot him in the face? Hopefully that number is zero. That's what we're going a for. A somewhat shorter line. That's a it's somewhat <laughs> marginally shorter. We, it, I've, it I've never been bold enough to ask that question because I don't want to find out. Right? <laughs> but when but when we start really framing this in how people behave, it, People's behavior is a much better signal than their opinions, right? Um, and so we've really gone to more of a behavior uh, monitoring model for the places that we're doing work. Um, and you know, I can give you a kind of an example of a case study in, in a minute. Um, and then, but the, but the last the last thing that we wanted to do was start just because there's been so much failure within international development. What do communities think about this? How do we get community voices? How do we get them to solve their own problems in a much less colonial way than we're doing work right now? Um, and you know, four years on, it, like August fifteenth, I think will be our four year anniversary. Um, we've worked all around the world, um, Southern Philippines, which is where we started, uh, Benghazi, Libya, uh, Northern Bosnia, Azerbaijan. Uh, Northeast Nigeria, uh, Tillaberry, Niger. We were working in, in Tillaberry two weeks before the um, third group guys were killed. So I know Tillaberry quite well. Um, and uh, and now we're starting projects in Chicago in Washington, D.C. Nice. Right? That's where it's where you need that projects. Uh, people are people are people. Yep. Um, and they need stabilization just as much as anybody else. Um, and quite frankly, we need their solutions and not uh, these uh, these top-down driven. So how are, how are you collecting this data? Yeah. So what's really kind of nerdy and cool about this is. I also yes. want to ask you, too. You can yeah. just lump this on top. Okay. How are you choosing the projects that you guys are doing? Ha. <laughs> That's that's a good question. Uh, let me feel that one first. Uh, Adultfriendfinder.com. Is that not right? <laughs> Ashley Madison? If, if, if only. Um, the, uh, the way we choose projects is just coming to us and who's got a good vision and who's got some money to put behind it because – our stuff isn't I- expensive at all because I mean we're we're a startup NGO. We do um, you know we uh, we bootstrap a lot of the way we do work. So it really boils down to the donor community and whether that's USAID, State Department, 
uh, DOD, uh, another large NGO coming to us, or private donors. Um, you know, we've done the, the work that we did in Benghazi was for a private corporation that wanted to s- restart their uh, their their uh, production line there after seven years. Well, really four years of uh, being out of work, and so you did it for George Clooney. I I, I wish I, I would be happy to work for George Clooney. Like it, at the end of the day, like I like really creative fixes to this stuff. I you know if, if someone came to me and said, "Look, you know I'm you know I'm a high net worth individual. Uh, I want to do um and, and I want to do something like this." I'd be like, "Okay, give me a problem or a place that you care about. Like just one of those. Um and then like we can do gather some data and we'll come back and show you what what do you want to solve? What problem do you want to solve? Because quite frankly, most of these communities, there's so much work to do." That, you know, and I believe that the donors should be able to decide what it is that they want to do. That's not the way government contracting works, but that is the way the NGO world works. So we have kind of a hybrid model between like what projects we choose. Sure. Um, but well, I, I like doing the interesting stuff. I uh, I have a lot of questions about Chicago that I want to ask you. Oh, yeah. Because that's where I'm from. But I'll let cool. you address Doug's question so, first. So how do you do? I mean, it's like, you know, I know this is like a, a survey thing, right? Everybody like it's like data surveys, whatever else. I mean, yeah. I also think, like, let me refine the question as well. Like, in addition to talking about how you get this data, I would like for you to talk about the validity of self-reporting, which <laughs> is <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I, mean, it's, I mean, maybe the question is more about less about like the methods, but how you guys are ensuring that you're getting good data. Yeah. Well, I, I think that in some way, I mean, I'm certain you have an answer to all of these, but I think that like, mm-hmm. um. I am curious how you're getting the data, like mm-hmm. physically collecting it, what you're getting, how, yeah. you're, how you're targeting what you're looking for. Yeah. And that, because that defines the problem, right? Absolutely. So um, the way that we approach this, when I left Palantir, uh, I worked mostly on government contracts when I was at Palantir, um, actually worked on the on the uh, Casadic thing in Jordan right before I left. So, oh, uh, I was there. Oh, God. Yeah. Well, then we need to set aside the uh, sparkling Ayudan. water and break out the uh, whiskey because that was problematic. So, I um, saw a lot of Ferraris there. Yes, you, I'm sure you did. <laughs> so when it comes to data collection, um, if you really want to do this right, you have to start um, with a very clean, low-variable, um, robust setup. So we've standardized all of our data collection across um, iPhone devices. Um, so they're either iPhone Plus or like a mini tablet. And um, you know the iOS operating system is pretty strong. So we use that, and then we couple it with commercial software. I just don't have the money and time and flow to be uh, having people design my own stuff. So the good thing about commercial software is that there's always an engineer that will pick up the phone and talk to me when something's broken. So, And once again, the government is garbage at contracting software horrible at it. So, you know, for me, I want, there's all these companies that are building things and we actually use a uh, software that was built. I think it was originally built for Best Buy for like the little customer satisfaction surveys, but the way that they designed like the, the backend coding on this works perfectly for us because there's a great metadata trail. There's always going to be a lat long. There's always a date time group on there and I can structure this out and manage it all in the cloud, which in a very nerdy way is something that I have to do to go back to your original question like oversight, like I can, like there is a pedigree of every single bit of data that, that comes into our system. So we have both a, um, a methodology that we adapted from uh, USAID um, that was called the district stability framework. Uh, but you know, it's really just a logical framework for looking at problems that, that framework only really 
hums along if it has a lot of data coming into it. So what you'll see is because we've standardized data collection into these types of devices, we can gather enormous data scale in a short amount of time. Best example is when we were working in Benghazi. I had 20 teams working for me for three weeks. We gathered 4,500 face-to-face structured surveys. 4,500. That's an enormous, that's enormous data scale. That's um, uh, How many responses is that? I mean, total. That's 4,500 people. No, I no, no. But yeah. I mean, like, uh, like how many questions are you asking? Uh, I think we had, n- after the demographic data, nine. Nine questions. And that's the other thing that you want to do. Like, when you have a- uh, academics that are pushing this in and, and some of these large kind of development firms, they're asking 20, 30 questions. And there's so much survey fatigue that people just – the, the answers at the end, they degrade. So quite frankly, if we're, if we're gra- gathering perception data, the best thing about it is you know, get on the objective and then get off of it. Like it is a snapshot in time. So we don't need these long questions. What we want to do is you know, in the old uh, military parlance, we're using, we're using these, Im- these community perception surveys to get us on paper. We're, we're trying to dial in you know, our scope on, onto what is actually going on. Those first three shots, that's, that's us understanding exactly where we are. Uh, and then we have to tighten up our shot group and get into the middle. We start with community perception surveys. But then we take our international team and we go on, go on site and we vet and validate all of those perceptions. Because you know, in Afghanistan, God, people were complaining about water everywhere. But the problem in a lot of places, we had dug too many wells. It's not that we had not dug enough. You know, we had given these wells out, but we had not given them the ability to manage these wells. And so they were just using them and using them and using them, and they were draining their aquifers. So what we needed to actually do was dump a whole lot of concrete in some of those wells and give them water management councils. This goes back to the New York Times article from this weekend where um, – and it's a little too wonkish for, uh, you know, Tom to cover. But, um, you know, the real magic, the difference between – um, what we do now and what how we did how people did things in Afghanistan was that the real point of that uh, well that you know came out in the New York Times project was or the New York Times article was that we had gone into the community we had data mapped it we had seen that uh, livelihoods um, and water were big issues to them we brought the community together and asked them to nominate their own projects to which the water pump was number one but we knew very very clearly that like they had to be able to manage this resource that if we just gave it to them, it could actually be something that was destabilizing. So as part of the cooperative, the community uh, multipurpose cooperative that we set up to help have them uh, come together and work, we created a water management council. So they have to work together to both monitor the water that's coming out, who's using it, and is it being equitably distributed? Helping them to do governance tasks builds up these muscles, these resiliency muscles, um, so that, you know, if they get hit by a typhoon, if they get by hit, you know, hit with cholera, bad guys come into the area, they have the muscles to, to respond to this because they're already practicing. And then we use the development money that comes from donors to help them practice with it. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how we do it. We, we build it out and then we, um, so we do a project. That project is designed to address an underlying systemic cause for vulnerability but then we set up uh, monthly indicators, behavioral indicators for these communities. How many people are using the water? Um, were there any like uh, disputes that arose out of this? Uh, how many people attended the, the cooperative meeting? Um, how many people paid their dues to the cooperative, right? What we want to see is how is the community fundamentally functioning? Then you link it up with um, like 
health clinic, how many people were reporting waterborne illness? Were we seeing that? Because obviously, if you're if you're bringing in and providing water, you want to see, uh, and it's clean water, you want to see the incidence of waterborne illness go down. Um, we also tend to monitor a lot of uh, of economic indicators. How many uh, like local micro businesses are there? Um, also. School attendance in high school is really important because out-of-school youth are the main uh, group that the um, that the bad guys pull from. So we really try to get these cross-sectoral indicators to understand essentially the health. Just like you know, when you go for a uh, a physical at the doctor, you know they take all these various indicators to understand. You know, do, do your blood work, you know, height, weight, um, you know, uh, uh, body composition, your blood work, and all these various indicators tell you about how healthy you are. You can do that with a community if you're smart enough and you got the guts to go down and work in the areas that we need to, not in the safe areas that. As you well know, get a lot of attention from most NGOs, where you know the, those last mile communities that are the most non permissive, the most austere, they get ignored, and that's why they become safe havens. I, I'm curious, um, Manning wise, like use use uh, Libya as an example. Where yeah, you, you have 20 collection teams going on. Yeah, right? like how many? It's two or three people in a team. Two. And you, I'm assuming, have a local who's like doing the interpretation. Oh, it's all locals. All locals. Right oh, yeah, yeah. You, so you, everything's subcontracted out to locals. Nothing subcontracted out to locals because you can't trust them to. You can't. I I have not found an international firm that can do this better than us. So when we went into Libya, I set up interviews for 250 Libyans around Benghazi to like we do like the speed dating round where we like narrow everybody down. And so then you're there and you're managing the project. Absolutely. And hiring all the teams. All of them. Right on. Qual- quality control. Yeah. And um, and so uh, my so the expat team that I took with me was four people. So I had uh, two f- two uh, Brits. Well. Irishman would not like to be called that. So we had a Brit and Irishman and then uh, two Americans. Um, and, you know, they helped me to, to manage this. But we did, uh, we had about 250 to 300 candidates that all came in. We um, we interviewed them, kind of cut it down. We looked at them in terms of like, you know, their, their affability, uh, their English skills, because all, all of the data is coded in English because the consumers are English speakers. Yeah. But um, th- but then they have the card, the interview card. And all the questions are open-ended so that there's no leading. You know, they ask just, what's the biggest problem facing your community? They listen to that answer, and then they code it in um, on the device itself. So who's processing? the? the you're processing all the raw data? Uh-huh. By yourself? Uh-huh. Well, no, that, that's what my, my team helps me out oh, with. Wow. But when you structure uh, the, the data inputs correctly, and it goes into a, a SQL database... It actually it's it's not that bad, and then you know we'll we'll upload it into our analytical software, and it's good. At the end of the day, though, when it comes to analysis, you still have you, you can't write algorithms that just spit out these wonderful answers. The good news is, um, when we're asking very basic questions about where the fundamental breakdowns are, those trends come out very very early. So even in this like three week process, it took us. You know, uh, we, we got on the ground. Um, then it took us two or three days to interview and hire everybody. Three days for training. Um, you know, they all go through our training. They all, on on both our methodology and the data collection. And then we send them out. Honestly, four or five days after that, like we saw the major trends. We saw exactly what was going on. But we wanted to hit a, a, a sample size that was large enough to really like punch people in the face. And we had it was a ninety nine percent confidence interval, less than two percent margin of error. Like that is insane for Benghazi. We can't do that in Washington D.C. But we can do it in Benghazi, right? Yeah, it's strong statistics. Uh, it, it's, I mean, it's brutal. I mean, you, you, because you have to punch people in the face. Because if the if a person comes to you and says, you know, so long as everybody just has access to a college education, you know, we can restore peace to Benghazi. I'm like, nobody's asking for a college education right now. They're asking for capital. 
there is no flow coming from the central bank in Libya to the central bank, or, which is in Tripoli, to the central bank located in Benghazi because of the schism between East and West Libya. I was like, you want to help these people? We need to create some capital. We need to create some liquidity. Granted, this is a pretty nerdy argument, but these this is what is keeping people from living um, good lives. And when you have ISIS that has money and cash flow coming in from outside countries, this gives them outsized influence. When I went there, I had 30,000 30, US dollars cash money. I was the most popular guy in town because I paid in cash every three or four days. We knew that liquidity was an issue before we went in. And man, like that's, you know, don't, don't pay by credit card. Don't pay by PayPal because they can't access that money. Um, and we had just a stellar team that was able to put this together. It's hard to raise money for solutions that aren't sexy. You know, <laughs> college education Absolutely. is sexy. Water wells is sexy, but it's really hard to say like, yeah, we're trying to establish a way to enhance the liquidity in this microeconomy in order to stabilize uh, the, the populace. Well, what did you do? We just made money available to them. What? <laughs> no, yeah. it's like literally like, oh, wait, problem was solved. Yeah, like, the, <laughs> and, and, th and this is this is a major issue. Um, quite frankly, we couldn't find. So the the company that we worked with like took some of our recommendations when it came to their own, um, you know, getting their own production line up and going and helping their employees that were affected by this. Um, in fact, we surveyed every single one of their employees that they could find. Um, but you're right, like. I, I took all this data to USAID, to the State Department, uh, the UN, DOD, and shared it with them, and nobody was interested. When, uh, one of our Crickets. friends who is at uh, NPS out in Monterey, sure. one of his projects, uh, I remember he reached out to me. He was like, I have this project for this paper. I have to come up with a like non-combat way of destabilizing a foreign government in theory, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Sapper's wet dream. We ended up uh, putting him in touch with uh, an economist at a hedge fund that we worked with, and the whole project was end up focusing on how do you fuck with the country's liquidity and basically destabilize their monetary base. Um, you know, with with no brute force whatsoever. Yeah. Um, both like digitally and with like yeah. fiat currency. Yeah. Um, Anyway, but that's like uh, a conversation for perhaps another day. It, it, yeah, um, I mean it, that that stuff is fascinating. But like you know, yeah, the the same the same levers that you would pull to stabilize a country is the is arguably uh, similar levers to pulling it to destabilize it. Yeah, I, I think that it's like the exact opposite direction, mm -hmm. um, but the same road. So, yeah. but bring sorry, what were you going to say? No, no, I agree. Bring it back to Chicago. So. What are you guys doing in Chicago? So we have been brought on um, to support uh, the Anti-Defamation League in their efforts to uh, bring communities closer with the police department because there has been there have been a lot of problems with uh, community policing, um, and so we are uh, doing some data collection, some advising, and. Um, it, it, we're going to be focusing on just a few small precincts uh, to test out to see what works. But um, you know, how do we how do we bring the the CPD um, and the communities that they're policing closer together? Are you able to say which communities or neighborhoods you guys are actually? I, I don't think the precincts have been the precincts to me haven't been uh, been told. Uh, they're picking two or three that are pretty different so that we can kind of see what this looks like in you know um, you know poor neighborhoods. Uh, we're not going to be much above like middle class neighborhoods, uh, but different ethnic makeups, 
also, I think there's going to be at least one neighborhood that experienced um, a pretty like negative policing um, event because um, you know how does how does like a, a a bad shoot how does that affect the perceptions of community? I think it's a good question to ask. Um, and you know, I think I think in the uh, name of public safety, this is this is some interesting research. And quite frankly, um, you know, it's more amazing to me that this kind of research hasn't been done previously the the people that have done this type of research have largely done it like in an academic focus for an academic reason and um they aren't the, if you were to talk to some of our biggest like partners at like usaid and state department they would come to be like you know like impl creates actionable data sets like we can create like our programs and our operations based on exactly what the data tell us whereas that's not an academic's goal an academic's goal is to have a hypothesis to go out and gather some data or quite frankly use other people's data and shoehorn that into their hypothesis and then test it so um yeah the data and that was proud of the problem with the human terrain system it was it was done by academics for academics it wasn't for uh programming and, op- and operational purposes well so. and it almost felt like that the directive for human terrain teams like the hts project mm. was even though it was supposed to be practical mm. like it was to answer an academic question mm-hmm. the whole time yeah. like they didn't like <laughs> any sociological research entity that is answering questions about like the incidence of homosexuality in a, in a certain subset culture is like like why are we asking this question at all yeah like, I, in afghanistan the only questions we needed to ask had to do with do you support uh, the government uh, like do you support like stability like security that type of stuff if it is not keeping the community safer and keeping you guys safer than who cares? Yep. Like seriously, yeah. like it, it's, it's just, you know, do you not remember the, that, that paper that the human terrain, the project came out with about the incidence of homosexuality yeah. in, in Pashtun males? Yeah. Completely and, ridiculous. And like that, that's like led to child molestation and a bunch of You're other like, stuff. Who like, cares? Who cares? This <laughs> well, is their and, cultural norm guys. Like, yeah. what are you like? And another thing that I saw was like information distillation. You know, you, everybody just takes snippets of these things like these like <laughs> academics yeah. come out with these big robust papers that are full of nuance um, you know it's like the analogy you know some some engineer comes in his problem is to cool and heat a building and he designs all this ductwork and specs these uh, big units that have a certain amount of capacity whatever and someone copies and pastes like a little bit of that and then copies it into their overarching document. Someone reads that, copy, paste a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. And the final solution is um, 17 ceiling fans. Yeah. You know, it, it, that's like, okay, yeah. we, this is what it said. It said the air needs to be moved. Yeah. Um, that's not what I said. You know, all the nuance has been removed. And there's a lot of the things like you were talking about, these papers that are written by academics for academics, I'm sure, yeah. are full of that, but they're so dense yeah. for the end user, whoever yeah. that may be, that it's we need to improve the socioeconomic conditions of this area through the use of water management mm-hmm. and clean water initiatives and stuff like that. And down the road, it's build wells as many as possible. That's And, and that's exactly the problem is that more often than not, like, we we understand broadly that you know we need to increase security or we need to I- increase uh, livelihoods in a given area, but we have no fundamental understanding of what the ground truth looks like. What is actually preventing security? What it, what are obstacles to security? What are obstacles to livelihoods? Um, you know. If you look at the majority of programming we do around the world, it looks like jobs work, livelihoods work, vocational stuff. Um, and people are like, well, why in the world would you teach these boys to do construction? 
why don't you teach and be farmers? I was like, how many out of school youth have you talked to in that area? Because I've talked to like 50% of them and they're all second and third and fourth sons of poor families. They don't want to be farmers. They're not going to get a cut of that land. They have to have something new. And guess what? ISIS destroyed the town that's 10 kilometers down the road. That town needs to be rebuilt. Construction is the single biggest growth industry in this local area. And you know what? We didn't force anybody. We were like, hey, what we're going to do is we're going to teach construction skills. Who wants to be involved? And they're the ones raising their hands. It has to be market-driven, uh, demand-driven solutions. And um, and, and, and the, it has to retain the nuance of what you're actually trying to solve because in that scenario that you just give, I could easily see, oh, construction is what needs to happen. We'll send the CBs at a million different things. You know, and, <laughs> yeah, and exactly. Like, no, no, we're trying to get them to do it. That's no, right. no, no, but we can do it this better This is a livelihoods project. Yeah, we're not trying to rebuild the city. That is actually the outcome from what happens. Yeah, but it's a all second order locals. effect. Exactly. So what what you just brought up is actually a fascinating dynamic that is playing out right now in the southern Philippines with the city that was taken over by uh, by and, ISIS and, and just destroyed. absolutely flattened. Yes, one third of it. It looks like Raqqa, and nothing has changed. I mean, we're we're eighteen months after, um, and it's absolutely it, it, it's still a disaster zone. So. What what they what the the Philippine government did was they contracted uh, to Chinese firms to rebuild it. But the the way that the you know Chinese consortium Chinese construction firms work is that they bring a lot bring in a lot of their own Chinese workers. The single biggest issue, and I can share data from fifteen hundred respondents from last week in this area, is the lack of livelihoods. But when all these Chinese workers are coming in, that money doesn't stay in the community. That money all get shipped back to where get shipped back to the mainland. And so it's not just what you do. It is how you do it. Um, Dude, how ironic is it that like the Philippines, a place that has been a source of cheap labor throughout the middle East and the rest of Asia has now begun importing Chinese manual laborers Mm -hmm. to rebuild. They've exported all their labor to Dubai, Dubai. yeah, yep. Dubai, and well, but but Abu not all of it, but nonetheless, like it is ironic to me that there's a labor shortage or job shortages. Yeah, that that construction deal, <laughs> I would love to see the details of that because that looked like a uh, that looked like a backroom drug deal to to enrich um, everything that Chinese anybody like from China does. I'm like, look at that. Yeah, like, oh, you just look at it. Oh my gosh, like, and they don't have to do anything. Military, like they don't have to project military power because they do it economically. Ab- ab- absolutely, like the so there was a um, there was a, a, a Chinese uh, a People's Liberation Army strategist that was re- uh, that's retiring. Um, that he gave this fantastic speech. I want to say he was using Singapore as Shenzhen, uh, and one of the things he said was like, you know, my biggest regret over the last of a forty year career is that we never fought a war. And I was like, brother, that's the brilliance. Yep. Look at the market share that you gained without ever having fought a war. You have bought West Africa. You have oh, bought yeah. East Africa. You have bought Southeast Asia. And we have spent all of our blood and treasure in on chasing nothing. on nothing. Well, and they did it in the smartest way possible. They created these predatory loan situations where like, hey, you know what? <laughs> yeah. We are going to help you rebuild your country through infrastructure that we are going to need down the road when we rape your country. So we're going to go ahead and build you roads and build you a working governmental infrastructure to provide security for our mm. follow-on forces that you don't know about yet. And when you default on these loans, which you're going to, guess what you're going to put up as capital? All the natural resources that we actually That's want. Right. And then we're going to come in, we're going to rape it, take it out on the roads that we built for you, and 
leave. That's right. And, and they I've, have done I've it without s- a shot fired. Yep. I've been saying that we should be doing this for like the last 15 years of my involvement in U.S. foreign policy, and no one listens to me. So, <laughs> I, I, so Thanos was right. Yeah. I'm just saying. So this, this is what's really problematic. You know, I, I have people that are just like, hey, you know, Justin, you work all over the world. What is the biggest thing that I need to know that I don't know right now? And I look at him and with like a tear coming down my cheek, I'm like, the Chinese and Russians are winning and we're losing. Oh, for sure. And people need to understand that and embrace that um, because that that is what the reality is. And what's even worse is that we're not even making a good faith effort yet to really make an impact on that. Mm -mm. Um, We're the we're the the Chinese and the Russians have turned into these tracking Doberman pinchers are bloodhounds that are like focused on a specific thing and they're they're measured and have an end state that they see that's many years in the future and they know the way to drive that. And we're the golden retriever that's just like squirrel, 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 like running all over the place and we look like we're doing more. Yeah. But well, we're not. And and being a little bit more specific, this is where the counterterrorism mission has distracted us from some of the larger um, issues. I mean, ICE... ISIS to the Philippines will never be an existential threat against the United States. Um, ISIS, ISIS, yeah, they won't. They won't. Like we are still punishing them for what happened in two thousand one. Most of those people couldn't point out the United States on a map. Can't believe you guys let Osama bin Laden and use your shitter. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. exactly. We're gonna burn your Osama bin Laden walk through here. Yeah, that's that. that, That's exactly right. And um, I, I. you know, one of the things the the unofficial uh, the unofficial slogan of Impul Project is "Be humble and be curious," because uh, the the last eighteen years I've spent working in, in this space, there's just so so much hubris that goes on, like people understanding, like they uh, people feeling like they understand like the situation and, and the path through. And I think opening up our own eyes and just listening to communities and really taking a step back and like, what are we actually trying to do here? Will these areas be better off? You know, a big, a big principle within the NGO communities first do no harm. Don't make this place worse off than you have. I, you know, I really have, <laughs> I, I believe that now. Well, I think the department of defense has utterly forgotten their, reason for being, which is defending our country, as opposed to doing this nation building, whatever, we're going to stamp out every problem we see pre-crime kind of thing going on. And I think that's infected the Department of State. And there's a whole generation of bureaucrats, diplomats, and soldiers that have no idea what a peacetime military or peacetime even looks like. And what stepping back and like reassessing the problem and re- focusing because you go talk to a bunch of people like what are you looking for man why did you the answer to why did you join the military used to be like i want to stand forth and defend my country yeah. against enemies foreign domestic people now it's still like, say that they just don't know what it means but now <laughs> now people <laughs> now people will openly say there's a war going on i want to go get gunfights yeah that's why i joined was to yeah. go get on gunfights yeah and and brian was part of that when we were young and dumb too yeah we all wanted that well, it, you know, we the, all sat around in our sopsy barracks looking at each other being like, I wonder what it'll be like uh, to get it that first time. Yeah. Shwack. Yeah. And you know what? But like, then we grew up. Yeah. And now look at the disgust on Brian's face. He's man, so, I, I, I tell you what, like, I, 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 I've I, gone 180 degrees in I in just that don't want to forget where we came from. No, oh, no. Acting it, like it's wrong it's so, shouldn't mean that we ignore that we were all guilty of it but, at some point. But we should recognize question. it for, for what it is, which is the exploits of children 
And we should not allow that to drive foreign policy. I mean, it, it, it's something that, that I think we all have to embrace and change. And um, one, one of the ways that uh, I, I actually judge when I'm working with like an, a, a new military partner is like, how rabid are they to get in a gunfight? Because um, you, you only, the gunfight is the last resort. Yeah. Um, and because we're going to win it, but we're not going to be able to control the consequences of what that happens. And when people die, like that is going to change other people's lives irrevocably. And like we can create more bad guys than we took off the battlefield. For sure. Um, There's and- dozens of places on the world that was like on the tipping point of bad and probably through some gentle economic work could have been brought back to the light side. But instead we sit in a kinetic Mm-hmm. answer yep and now that place is terrible Mul- multiple places around the world we could talk about that yeah i i mean i think that's even with chicago is the yeah, totally agree systemic problem mm-hmm. has to do with infrastructure and economics so a- a- absolutely and i think that's that's really what's going to come out uh from some of the data now what, what's interesting is the way that we are splitting up some of these um some of these precincts is that we're we're going to be able to do a deep dive on like the economic situation the security situation even the infrastructure situation in each of these areas and how does it impact families because at the end of the day they're the ones that are making um you know, rational decisions about uh, who they're going to support. How, you know, are they going to be, uh, you know, good citizens or are they going to be kind of, you know, uh, ambivalent citizens because the government doesn't do anything for them? Honestly, if, if I right, uh, I mean, if, if a large donor came to me and said, hey, Justin, you're a good guy. I, I want to give you a big old stack of money. What problem do you want to work on? I'd be, I would say, let me go to some Indian reservations. Like the Native Americans have been shit on for so long. And like we have a delivered services, like highest, uh, highest rates of addiction, of uh, sexual assault, um, of violence in the country. And the, the, prob- does the problem is solving itself, Justin. I don't understand what your issue is. <laughs> I, uh, uh, I hope you edited that, <laughs> that out. That's so crazy. You can't say, <laughs> the, uh, but, but that's exactly it, right? Like people are people are people. Um, and, I don't know. I think um, this work has really been humbling to me um, and how much I don't understand and just being able to like learning to take a step back, like help people to solve their own damn problems. Just like I would want someone to like respect me and help me solve my own problems. Um, and well, if you had a problem, I think we all universally understand as a society that like you have to be the one to fix it. Like I can't send you to enough rehabilitation places to make you stop. I, I don't think drugs. that's universally understood. Well, it's not universally understood. It's the same way on an individual level. It is. It's, it's a, a person has to make the choice that they want to get sober. A person has to make the choice. That I, they want I to agree. Get it's fit. the truth. No, no I'm just saying yeah. that I don't think it's necessarily no, no. It, for I certain. Mean, I don't think alcoholics see it, but you can't like I'm the, I mean you, the difference between someone having a marked change, like Sobriety, whether it be through the adoption of a program or a separate identity or actually addressing the inherent, like, you know, band-aiding there, like the person has to make that decision and has to do it themselves. You cannot force the horse to drink after dragging him to a water hole. Well, and when you when you view yourself as the parent in a situation, that is makes by default the person that you're interacting with a child. And if you treat people around the world like children, they're going to become reliant on their parents and they're going to behave like it's colonial. Yeah. And when I was in, I was in uh, Congo DRC 
in 2016. And before I came there, I had so many preconceived notions about what this, what the problems were about this country. And what part of DRC were you in? I was in the Northeast part near Dungu. Oh yeah. And I was thinking, you know, these people are subsistence farmers. They're just working all the time. They don't have any time to deal with any of their economic issues or local development or whatever. And what I found was that's true. They are subsistence farmers, but they had no concept of bettering your surroundings or are striving for something in the future. And it was just because the Belgians had kept them under their shoe for so long. It had, I, I hesitate to use use the word bred out, but it had been culturally forgotten. The idea of self-determinance and the idea of like we together can like improve the area that we live and we can improve it. And the problem with all the NGOs I saw around there was their solutions were be their parent. We're going to treat these people like children and we're going to hold their hand and we're going to make sure they don't step in the puddle and we're going to make sure they have their clothes on and their shoes tied tight and their lunchbox packed. And that did nothing for these people. Um, but it was totally unobvious to me. I mean, there was a, a market in town that was probably the biggest business in town. And there was this big dirt pit to get to the market. You know, people would walk through this kind of dirt gully to get to it. Right next to the market was a huge stack of mahogany that had been resawn. I mean, it was just yeah. mahogany planks. And it was a store. They had hammers and nails and all that sort of stuff they sold. And I just asked the owner, like, why haven't you built a bridge like across this mud pit? And like, he looked at me like, why would I do that? Like, why would I do that? would cost me time and effort for what? It's like, well, it's improving. Like now people don't have to get their mud. Maybe the traffic to your business is going to increase because people can get there more easily. And the concept of that was just, Utterly foreign to him. And I don't know how you... Silly Mzungu. You don't realize that that keeps the lions out of the market. Yeah. (laughs) I don't don't know how you... Well, that was not his. He just, it just hadn't even dawned on it. Yeah. I mean, he was in the middle. All right? So, so, but to kind of go back, I, I totally appreciate the point that you're making. I think that's true. The, the one advantage that we have when we do this is we actually, when we're looking for partner communities, that's part of it. Like if, if we, part of the reason that we'll, we'll data map like five or six communities at a given time is because not all of them are going to like raise their hand and be like, yeah, we will own our future. We will, you know, have, you know, inclusive stakeholdership, but we're all, we're going to drive this bus. We need you to put gas in it. So you, might you, you look for buy-in before you even start. Oh, oh, are you kidding? Absolutely. Oh, uh, I mean, we've turned, we've turned a lot of communities down. In fact, sometimes when I get pushback from some communities, I'm like, no problem at all. I talked to you, you know, the, the mayor right down the road, he is stoked to see us. We're going to go work there for six months. You know, we're going to bring in, you know, probably, uh, uh, you know, a whole bunch of new jobs, you know, put in some investment. When you, uh, if, if you ever want to talk to me again, just give me a call, man. And man, three months later, when, when they're seeing, you know, more people being employed, new businesses popping up, more kids going to school, uh, fewer uh, security incidents, they always call. But they don't call until they feel that pain, until they feel that pressure, until they, they – and at the scale that I work on, um, it's it's nice that we, we get to do that. And I think – so we 
when we started in 2015, um, we went to northern Maguindanao province um, in, in the southern Philippines. So this is part of the ARMM. And Maguindanao, is, it is a rough neighborhood. It is, uh, it is essentially the uh, home area of the Moro Islamic Liberation Front. There's been uh, decades of fighting there. Um, a number of... Uh, is it really called... M-I-L-F. It, come on, don't do this to me. I totally, <laughs> like I slowed myself down. Yeah, so call it M-I-L-F. Uh, yeah, everybody wants to call it the, the, the MILFs. The MILF. The, the, the MILF. Uh, but yeah, it's the M-I-L-F. Um, what a misnomer. What, <laughs> someone needs to teach them that like, the U.S. government can only speak in acronyms. My travel agent lied. Yeah. <laughs> I want to yeah. go to the land of MILFs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also, well, this is nothing what I expected. Oh, yeah. Queens. <laughs> <laughs> Good Lord. So, um, you know, we went in and we had, uh, we had data mapped a whole bunch of areas and, um, everywhere was vulnerable. Everybody was having problems with, um, with, uh, livelihoods. Some places were having problems with water, some places with infrastructure, but there was this one place that had a big, uh, problem with security. And this is a dangerous area. Like they, their threshold for like violence is kind of like the South side of Chicago. You know, if you take, if you ask someone like, you know, what, what is your threshold for violence? You know, someone in Evanston might be like, uh, pretty low, but someone on the South side is like, oh, well, you know, so long as someone doesn't get shot on my block this week, that's eh, pretty good. So like people's tolerance levels are very, very different. People in Megiddo now, like their toler- tolerance level for violence is quite high. I mean, it, I mean, think of it as like, um, like a, a, a Wardak or a Pactia. Like their threshold is high. Um, but even, even with that high threshold, when we asked them the question, what's the biggest problem facing your community? They said security. And I'm like, good Lord. Like if you're scared, what is going on here? So, you know, we went out into the community. Um, and the first thing that we did is we showed up at the, um, at the school. And I went into um, I went into the uh, the high school, and there were twice as many school uh, girls in school as boys. And I was like, "Well, well, this is bizarre." And so then I went to the grade right under it. So tenth grade, ninth grade, eighth grade, and it was still you know twice as many girls, twice as many girls. It wasn't until we got to like fourth or third grade that we saw uh, those numbers evening out. And so I asked all the teachers. I was like, "Hey, could you stay after and have a focus group with me?" And I wanted to unpack these issues, right? Because we, we had the survey data that told us that security was an issue and that livelihoods is an issue. But then I go into the school and I see twice as many girls going to school as boys. So this is a completely Muslim community. You know, uh, all those girls in hijabs, you know, I mean, this very religious community. Um, and so I sat down. I was like, why are there, why are there so many girls and not that many boys? So they're like, oh, well, you know, farms are failing. They're not doing really well. So they, they pull the boys out of school. I'm like, okay. Um, uh, so tell me about this violence. And, and they're just like, oh, uh, I was like, you know, is, is the Philippine military treating you bad? Is ISIS coming in? And what's going on? They're like, no, it's those boys. I'm like, what do you mean? I mean, this is, this is like kind of like right in the middle of like, you know, rebel hill area. They're like, I mean, we're all of, all of our husbands and uncles or brothers, they fought for the MILF. Like, like the MILF isn't the problem. No, it's the out of school youth. They're, they're totally depressed and they're hanging out and uh, smoking meth at night. And then they got to steal cows and horses to pay for that meth. And then they get involved in the, in the drug gangs. I'm like, you're fucking blowing my mind. So there, there's no like terrorism problem here. This is a criminality problem driven by um, the, the drug issue, but largely it's an economic, it, it's based in economics. And they're like, yeah, why, why did you think? That this is a terrorism issue. I was like, because I'm a white guy from America. Because I read Wikipedia. Because I read Wikipedia. <laughs> because whenever there's violence, there's ISIS is behind it. Um, and so um, we, we organized all the farmers and said, look, um, what we wanted to do was reduce the number, uh, was increase the number of boys going to school, reduce the number of boys out of school, 
Um, but they're the symptom. The problem was the failing farms. And so we brought all the farmers together and said, look, um, the boys you pulled out of school are creating a lot of problems in this community and all the surrounding communities where you know they're stealing cows and horses, getting in gunfights. So here's the deal. I will um, help you set up a, a livelihoods cooperative. I will fund the projects that you ask me for. Um, I ask two things. One, no more pulling boys out of school. If you have to pull your son out of school, you call me first. We will figure something out. No more pulling boys out of school. And if you can, if you get to an economic point where you're good enough, send them back. Two, no harboring terrorists. No harboring actual bad guys because I go to jail if you guys did that and I you know, gave money to you. Uh, outside of that, Let's figure this out. So, um, you know, we so you know we we organized the cooperative, um, and I said, look, you know, I've got enough money for you know one project. What do you want? Whatever you ask for, I'll do it. They're like, we want a solar dryer. Any of you guys familiar with what a solar dryer is? Oh yeah, like a kiln. Uh, no, no, but like you're much closer than I was when I first guessed what it was. You want to guess? Go ahead. Oh, for the lumber, right? No, um, that's a kiln. Yo, so what this is, when I heard solar dryer, because of my Afghanistan experience, I was expecting some sort of like solar panels and some sort of weird thing. It's a big slag of, slab of concrete. It looks like a basketball court. And they're just putting clothes on it? No, it's for crops. drying their crops. It's crops. Uh, it's crops. And, and I was like, I heard slab of concrete, and I was like, well, let's go all the way back. Yeah. And, 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 and they were like, I was like, you can ask for anything, but you're asking for a big slab of concrete? Like, Really? They're like, yeah, man. Like, well, tell me why. They said we lose twenty to thirty percent of every harvest to rot, and the problem is we don't have the we don't have the capital to uh, build this economic in infrastructure, this ag infrastructure, uh, to either dry our crops or to store our crops. So what happens is, you know, we we harvest everything, and then um, we put it in bags, and then the middlemen, the wholesalers all come in and they try to buy our produce uh, for pennies on the dollar because they know that we can neither dry nor store any of this stuff um, and that if we hold it too long, it'll all go to rot. And I was like, that, that is awful. And they're like, oh yeah, like we're exploited by our own people because we're poor. Uh, and I was like, well, well, fuck those guys. Let's, let's fix that. So, um, you know, we spent, um, I think it ended up being like 55, 6,500 bucks, um, you know, use local labor, uh, put in a solar dryer. The very next harvest, they were able to, um, dry five tons of corn that would have otherwise gone to rot. And what that ended up being was an enormous capital injection uh, within that community. That capital injection allowed them to diversify their crops, to um, uh, to invest in some like to diversify even their own business plan. Some of them set up like little uh, block making businesses and all kinds of things. Um, and you know we have been now working in that community. We'll have been four years, but I really the last year we haven't done that much because they're doing so well. What we what we see now is that. Um, the number of boys attending uh, school, well, number one, security incidents have dropped to zero. They used to be three to four per month. They've now dropped to an average of zero per month. You usually see like one per quarter, which is great. Uh, the number of boys attending high school up 66%. The number of micro businesses, micro enterprise in that community is up 283%. That it's one of the most stable communities in that region. All from a slab of concrete. So a slab of concrete. Some uh, some vocational training um, in like now using their new crops because like I mean they were all like yeah, what are we we'll do just, it all this corn well they're like well now we bought a whole bunch of cacao and I was like ah guys like why did you buy cacao like I could have brought in an agricultural guy that would have told you buy this cacao and not that yeah. cacao but chocolate's hard <laughs> it it is hard and, and they but 
but the, the, the results are still good. They're not optimal, but at least they're their solution and they're being proactive in owning, in owning their own, uh, um, owning their own future. But what was really powerful to me was around, um, was around, um, I want to say early 2017. Um, this was when ISIS in the Philippines was really starting to take off. They were, um, they were based in this area called Butig, which just happened to be across the mountains from my community. Um, it was like our community is literally the first village that once you cross the mountains, that's, that's what you run into. Um, and the armed force of the Philippines had done a large clearing operation that pushed the ISIS guys into these mountains. And so they got up into these mountains and they were like, well, we need a new safe haven. The old place ain't working for us. So they sent emissaries down to villages to, to get safe haven. And, um, you know, they came in our village, which was mostly MILF controlled. And, uh, they said, well, Hey, you know, we've been, we've been beaten out of our old safe haven. You know, we want to take up residence here. And, uh, our people were like, (laughs) Go fuck yourself. Uh, we like we've got a good thing going for us. You see all this stuff because like now they you know they um they they had uh, all all this this new investment coming in and they're like yeah we we have a deal like you're not welcome. And they're like well I mean we're ISIS so you know what you gonna do about it? And they're like hold my tea, watch this. So they called up the local MILF commander out in that area and said, look, ISIS is coming in here. Like the NGO that we're working with can't can't work out here and can't invest with in us if they're using this as a safe haven. Uh, you need to hit him. And the MIF commander was like, sounds good. Sent a company out to schwack these dudes, like killed two or three of the ISIS guys, pushed them back into their own safe haven. And I mean, I'm an NGO guy at this point. I would like, if the MIF commander was like, hey, do you want me to go fucking kill ISIS? I'd be like, you make your own decisions as the commanders you see I'm fit. I'm not nuts. <laughs> it's, but, but at the end of the day, like when you start helping communities to rebuild their own muscles and to own their own futures, they're they're able to have they're co- able to come up with solutions. There was a, there's a battalion of AFP right down the road. There is a reason that the community didn't call the AFP. They didn't trust them. The AFP wasn't doing a good enough job in really creating those good bonds. But the community still had like that it, um, like immune that autoimmune response um, against ISIS. That's what resiliency looks like. It is when communities are coming up with their own solutions. But this only happens when we use the money effectively and really monitor this work and help help to empower these communities to do it in ways that um, that are much more sustainable. And so this is the model that we've been replicating. Things are going well. I mean, you saw the stuff. Hey, New York Times, not bad. No, no. Um, and, um, and, you know, right now our portfolio is growing. I mean, I think I think I run the, the best NGO that no one's ever heard of. But the reason no one's heard of us is because I'm not spending my time in New York and D.C. and like shilling to all these people. We've been out doing the work. But and now we have all the stupid da- podcasts. Oh yeah, well no, I'm so excited. Well, quite frankly, I was just really excited to see Doug again. I mean, is we're going to go to lunch after this. It's going to be amazing. Taco it, Tuesday. Where so where can people find out about you guys? So we have um, obviously we have a website um, and which is impleproject.org org i m p l project org. That's easy. Our Facebook page has uh, is updated way more. I really want to do a new uh, website, but quite frankly, the reason I haven't done a website is because I've been spending all that money in the bush. Um, but um, our Facebook page has a whole lot of our projects. You can see a lot of the things that we're doing um, and reach out. I mean, at the end of the day, like we have a whole lot of data. We're, we're happy to you know collaborate with with uh, with new partners, with new initiatives. Uh, we've just brought on two veteran fellows. One guy is from SIAP. The other guy was a uh, was a Navy analyst. Um, so we're really trying to like bring more uh, veterans in and um, you know got to hire people that know how to use Palantir so that's what the Davy analyst does yep. so he is so good at it it's funny man uh, yeah <laughs> like Brian's face like his look of like disgust like yeah. 
Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but do you do you know Peter Thiel's leavings? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you're yeah. Uh, let, 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 let's let, let's move on, man. You're getting me too close to a uh, NDA problem. So uh, <laughs> yeah, so ambush uh, hey, man, close. I'm super glad you came in. Um, it's so good to for, see you, man. For, God, I can't believe it. I want us to do projects like I want us to pr- whatever you guys are doing. Mm. Like essentially, you're like one of the greatest content creators I could ever imagine. So I'm looking forward to like seeing things coming back from your projects that we can mm. start using to show people opportunities that exist outside of, you know, community driven yeah. projects. Actually, I, I, I was thinking about this on the drive up. I think because of the great article that Tom wrote, I think a follow on piece that if you guys are interested in, we actually write that, that story from the community like starting out with the data mapping. Why were we in Paras in the first place? Well, because the Kalafa had set up a pretty big camp with the bad guy, like right down the road. And these were the boys that they were recruiting. But you know, how do you set up a cooperative? How do you work with, you know, a former rebel group like MILF? That'd be awesome. Yeah. I'd also love to have you back to talk about uh, the Chicago experience. Yeah, this. absolutely. Well, you know, project we're, we're really, we're really excited about it because, you know, um, I, I felt a little bit guilty over time, like trying to really deliver, uh, great outcomes for communities that are, um, that are, you know, vulnerable, but we have so many communities in the United States that we can do that too as well. Um, it's in, in, you know, you got you to take care of your home home as well. So that's something that's really important to me. I'm really excited about this. Um, ADL have been great partners so far. Um, and and quite frankly, I'm learning a lot working with them because the sensitivities of working in the United States are so different. I mean, oftentimes we're the only NGO that's actually working on the ground. I mean, you know, when you saw the New York Times piece, um, you know, you had NGOs that were collaborating with the military, but we were the only NGO like on the ground. We were the only ones that were um, that, that had been working there a lot. So we don't you know, we don't get to do that very often, but in the United States, this is a saturated market. You don't want to come into it with that like soft mentality of like, Hey, sit back and watch the magic happen. You know, you, you Hello, gotta- ladies <laughs> gentlemen have arrived. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, this is problematic. So, yeah, yeah. um, but yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about it. my, my mom's from uh, LaGrange. So right. uh, yeah. Yeah. So like Chicago, I'm, I'm super excited. Yeah, man. I mean, not only, um, well, is that my hometown, but my personal experiences with the, the police there were very interesting, not necessarily negative um, or positive, but you know, when I moved into the city, uh, like after I got out of college, the first neighborhood I lived in was definitely uh, gentrifying. And the three years that I lived there, probably half the houses on my street, you know, were torn down and rebuilt as condos. Um, But that first year, I remember I was walking my dog and this gray crown Vic, you know, these, there were these kids like kind of cruising down the street, walking on the sidewalk, maybe half a block ahead of me. And this gray crown Vic comes like cruising down the street the wrong way and pull like rolls up kind of like one wheel on the curb. And these three dudes get out and they're, you know, bandanas like low over their eyes, big NFL jerseys, you know, like baggy shorts. Um, I mean, they look like gangbangers. But they also had like uh, shoulder holsters and like you know the badges on like the dog tag jeans. Yeah. Um, and King they were Kong just ain't got nothing on me. Yeah, I man. Guess. I mean, they were they were like these gangster tack officers, you know, like um, and yeah, I was like, holy, like, dude, this is something out of. Like, yeah, I don't know exactly what happened. In I was a like, bad way. Uh, uh, I mean, who knows? I, 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 who knows what the story cover? was? But like, it was a very. Um, it's shocking 
Uh, yeah, you know, compared that to like be jarring. Every, everything I else expect, I've yeah, seen. I, I, so I, I, absolutely, I mean, I, it, it, it's it's the uh, topic for for certainly a, a different time. But I, I th- I'm going to start dressing. I think um, <laughs> <laughs> like a, a Hispanic gangster. Yeah, with shoulder holsters, but, but nothing yeah. but white jeans and wife beater t-shirts. But guys, what's the first rule of soft? Right, look the part. Yeah, that's right. Look the part, and like, is that or the part? Or way? That, yeah, I mean, I, it, it's. But these are the dynamics that we're actually wanting to go into because, quite frankly, I what what I would say is like. You, you've dressed that way for a given reason, and that gives off a certain image of you. But is, is that giving off the image that you actually want to have? Like, and I would honestly take a like take a picture of that, show it uh, to the community and like a focus group, and be like, "How does this make you feel? Do you feel safer? Do you feel like this person is uh, representing your community, is from your community, or is this something else?" I, I don't even think it was community focused. You know, my feeling um, is that that was a. Uh, a job level or whatever that like you weren't a detective you weren't like a beat officer you know it wasn't really SWAT team so this is like the cool like, guy yeah I mean it's like, like te- the 5'11 pants and beard dog it nice. was uh yeah I mean it was the, the you know they were called like tack officers like they were the tactical officers um and so the best part about this conversation is that Aaron has no idea what these guys were beyond their name well I mean they could totally I just been, know that I knew that you knew who they were when you saw them they were you know they had they were in gray cars. They weren't in squad cars, right? Um, and yeah, they got cool to guys. wear non-uniforms. Yeah. Right? Chicago is um, like the version of your story that you told where instead of figuring out that it was a concrete pad and some vocational training, the answer was a shitload of military and More cops. To lock these kids up and fuck them up. Hey, you could also spend... Uh, city budget dollars on buying PVS 31s and high-end short barrel oh rifles God. for all of your SWAT well, officers. But, quiet. Just to just to offset that too, um, just because I don't want this to be like a Lambos the gentrifying neighborhood type mm-hmm. of thing. Um, in Lincoln Park, you know, if you're familiar with Chicago, uh-huh. um, I had some friends that lived. Do you remember where Tower Records was? Oh, of course, yeah, uh, yeah. All right, so I had some friends that lived in one of those big like six bedroom apartments mm-hmm. with Tower Records. And they used to throw these crazy parties there mm-hmm. because the Smirnoff girls that would hang out at like, you know, go get paid to go to the, the Clark Street bars would then come by with all this extra Smirnoff mm-hmm. and like, hey, like after hours party at our place. One of my friends and his one of his friends were like walking to go get cigarettes on Clark Street. His friend like spit. Who knows whether he like hit this parked cop car or not. Um, but like definitely wasn't doing it as hey, like, fuck you guys, right? Yeah. So these two officers get out of the car, you know, hey, what the fuck? The, my friend, who was the the more sober one, you know, like, like mm-hmm. hey, like, no, you know. Sorry about that. Hey, yeah. like, no disrespect. Mm-hmm. This yeah. dude's fucking, like, you know, can hardly put two words yeah. together. Asking for like, a hickory well, massage yeah, well, is what he's doing. <laughs> exactly. Well, so they put, uh, they put them both in the car. And they start driving west and then south. And, like, you know, Chicago, like, police headquarters on California. Mm-hmm. So they get on California Avenue, they're driving south. He's like, fuck, man, these guys are like, not only taking us to like the local precinct for mm-hmm. whatever reason, like we're going to a fucking like Chicago yeah. PDHQ, right? Fucking keep going south, past Chicago, you know, hey, like, where are we going? You know, shut the fuck up, blah, blah, blah. And uh, they just, you know, it's like three in the morning. They drove them down a deep south side and we're like, get the fuck out of the car and fucking left them there. Um, and... You know, it was like that wasn't uh, picking on. Isn't that the kind um, of policing we want to see, though? 
Listen, and, nobody, and this, let me, nobody got hurt. Nobody let me, went to let me jail. say that this is well, not meant to be like ragging yeah. on Chicago Lessons PD were in, in a general sense. Yeah. But what I'm saying is that it was agnostic. Like stories of that type of behavior were agnostic to the neighborhood like level economically. Yeah. So right? what, what I think what you're tapping into is something that's really, really interesting. And especially when it comes to community policing anywhere in the world, like there are these types of attitudes and dynamics uh, that are going on. And they're highly correlated with the relationship between communities and and their police forces. Where you see more animosity, um, and quite frankly, where you see a lot of bad shoots, just happen to be highly correlated with places where these relations are bad. And you find these types of these types of dynamics coming out where there isn't this you know deep investment in like public safety and community protection. There there is sometimes an us versus them dynamic, which everybody that we all need to figure out how to work through in a better way. Well, and it's hard to it's hard to convince either side to be the one to extend the Oh, everybody has grievances. Everybody has grievances and the one thing that you know I I I've probably been remiss um uh in, in not bringing up is that look good development work, good stabilization work, good community policing work, all this stuff has to be based on incentives. Like the one thing that I could tell you unequivocally is that trying to have discussions with communities or individuals or groups, military, government, NGOs, it all boils down to what the incentive structure looks like. And you have to fundamentally like understand like, are, is this solution a net better off for everybody? And have you communicated that appropriately? And are they willing to buy into this? Because telling people this is the right thing to do, I mean, that in like a quarter will get them a gumball. Like it just doesn't fucking matter. You have to talk to people about their incentives um, and, and and understand that in a much better way. And this flies right in the face of the way the U.S. government approaches business and quite frankly, the way the NGOs approach business. Most NGOs are just like, well, it's the right thing. Everybody should have ha- access to health. It's like, yeah, uh, but like the government is fundamentally not paying the health workers in Northeast Nigeria. If you haven't been given money in six months, are you showing up to work? Don't like bad mouth the health workers. Like we got, we have to change these incentive structures. And so I, I actually think that's why I'm really excited to, to start this uh, work domestically is fundamentally like, how do we look at these incentive structures within uh, police forces and within communities, these grievances that have, that are well earned over years, decades, how do we start to unpack this and bring these communities together? Because you know, at the end of the day, I, I, I believe cops want to protect communities. Absolutely. Um, well, and it's, but it's, it becomes this chicken egg where the chicken right. is blaming the egg and vice versa as to who started it. So you have to identify these levers that both sides can agree upon mm-hmm. that like this lever needs to be pulled that's right. and that's not a blame game. And then like kind of work that's from right. there. It's difficult. So that, and that's part of the, like the, the data mapping process itself, because once you, when you're vetting and validating all these, the, the, the roots of these grievances and the roots of these breakdowns, you start seeing the underlying systemic causes. And in, in, in a lot of places we, we might see that cops are underpaid, right? Or that, um, or that they don't feel taken care of by police leadership in terms of what the protocols are for protecting themselves, or that they feel that they're being put on beats where people fundamentally don't like them. And then you go to those, then you go into the community and say, look, like, you know, when you, you guys are having these protests, like, how are you actually reaching out and engaging uh, the police on a, on a weekly level? Like, are you having these discussions with the police and in signaling these problems in, in, in a legitimate way instead of like throwing bottles, spitting on cars? Like, when was the last time you reported a crime to make your community safer? Like, did you do that? And why or why not? And these are the conversations we have to have. 
a, ho- a whole lot more conversations, a lot less judgment, and honestly, just getting people to the table, giving people the benefit of the doubt, and trying to work through this shit because it is fucking hard, man. Yeah, it well, is so hard. There's nothing more difficult than cultural change. Because that's what it ends up mm. having to be. The, in that situation, the culture of the neighborhood needs to change and the culture of the the police needs to change. But there's nothing that people feel more attached to emotionally mm-hmm. than those things. And they feel like the who they are, the identity of what they've done, whether they're a citizen in a neighborhood or a law enforcement officer in, in that neighborhood, yeah. their culture is so tied up in the things they see and the behaviors they see every day. And so to ask one of those people to change one of those things... Um, regardless of the incentives, it just strikes at the core of who people think they are and it's difficult. That, and one of the things that I, that I love is that as an NGO, I get to play the role of an, an outside, um, unbiased interlocutor and just and that's part of the reason that we get that data is so that we all are starting a conversation that uh, you know is somewhat impeccable from a data standpoint and we just say this is our starting point this is what's going on where do we go from here? Like, how can we help you to figure this out? Because like, I mean, I'm not a resident of Chicago. I'd love to be, I love Chicago, but like, you know, I'm not a resident there. This is, these are your communities. And you know, if you're a police officer, this is your safety. How do we bring you together and and look at these um, in a, in a much more holistic, but incentivized way, instead of just being like, well, you shouldn't do that to, you know, these communities and these kids. And you guys, you know, you need to be reporting all these uh, crime offenses. That doesn't work. We've, we've learned that doesn't work. So how can we bring everybody together and restart these conversations from uh, a place of shared interest and from information instead of, you know, these, these grievances and biases that, that have very legitimately built up over years? Yep. Well, can't wait to hear more about it, man. Yes. Thank you very much for coming by, Justin. Really, thanks for having me. It's been a great conversation. Yeah. Looking Lunchtime. forward to doing another one. Lunchtime. Thanks. Tacos. <laughs>